Hey, Matt Techman here from Elucidations. Before we get going today, I just thought I'd ask, if you're a fan of the show, to maybe go to our iTunes page and leave a rating and or review, and that way more people can discover it. All right, thanks. Welcome to Elucidations, a philosophy podcast recorded at the University of Chicago. I'm Matt Teichman. And I'm Emily Dupree. Amanda Green is a lecturer in philosophy at University College London and law and philosophy fellow at the University of Chicago Law School. And she is here to discuss the legitimacy of democracy. Amanda Green, welcome. Thank you. So our topic today is the legitimacy of democracy, but before we get into that, I just wanted to ask why democracy is something that you're interested in in writing about and trying to justify its legitimacy. That's a great question. I think that democracy is something that we have come to take for granted in the contemporary era. Basically, it's now the gold standard for how governments should be organized. I'm interested in the history of how it came to be the gold standard, but I'm also interested in justifying it as the best form of government. One of the things that I've noticed about our contemporary political discourse is that everyone claims to be a fan of democracy. Everyone favors democracy. You see it as a politically useful term in the democratic arena when people say, we must have this policy because this fulfills what it is to be a democracy, or we ought not to have that policy because it wouldn't be democratic. Another way that we see democracy used in political discourse, which I'm very interested in, is in the international arena. So increasingly, democracy is considered the only legitimate form of government in international politics. And you see that in the rhetoric that surrounds international institution building. So we criticize countries that are not democratic enough, and we also um, are trying to institutionalize forms of democratic decision-making in the international arena. So you see this explicitly in debates in the European Union that um, forms of governance above and beyond the state are also being expected to be democratic in various ways, involving elections, involving processes of public consultation, involving public accountability, these sorts of features. And so it seems to me now that democracy just has this positive valence. It's the kind of word that we think of as a good thing. How could you not think democracy is good? And partly that's because politicians and diplomats have used it in their rhetoric. But also, I think it's fairly widely shared in the public culture. We do tend to think democracy is a good thing. So as a philosopher, my job is to question everything. And so I started thinking through, why are we so accepting of democracy as this thing that is good by default, as this way of doing government that is the best way of doing government or the most favorable way of doing government? If you look back across the span of human history, there have been many different kinds of ways of doing government. There have been many different forms of political orders. And I'm not necessarily saying that we should return to some of the older forms of political organization, but I think that to the degree that we consider democracy better, 
we should really understand why, because it's something that we just accept by default as the best way to govern. Okay, so democracy in the contemporary media is really hot right now, at least in modern industrialized Western society or something like that. It's considered, as you said, the gold standard. A system of rule is often judged good or bad according to how democratic it is. Is that right? Or is it just a fad? Like, is democracy actually the best form of government? What do you think about that? Great question. So democracy, I think, actually has become an idea that's quite broad and all-encompassing. In some ways, it reflects a lot of the things we aspire to achieve in politics. So it reflects our desire for equality, for eliminating hierarchies. It reflects our desire to feel that as a people, we are engaged in self-rule versus being ruled by some outside entity against our will. It reflects a kind of ideal of independence and progress that we can imagine people collectively engaging in self-governance. So I think democracy contains a lot of aspirational ideals that we find valuable and we find attractive morally. You mentioned that you might think that democracy is a fad. And I think actually some historians of political thought who you know aren't just looking at the last century but looking at the past millennium could argue that that is basically what it is. It's just what's popular right now for how we organize the exercise of political power. I think it's more than a fad though, because we have seen quite a bit of political stability and economic progress in the period of time in which democracy has come to be the predominant form of government. So I think it's not just kind of an accidental fad that will come this century and go away next century. There's something, it has some staying power, but I think because it appears in so many different forms right now, and because it has mixed degrees of success on different dimensions, it's not exactly clear how we should evaluate whether it's here to stay and whether it's really gonna be the form of government that beats out all the alternatives. So I think what's so interesting about what you just said is that democracy sort of expresses this ideal of human equality and it seems like the manifestation of self-rule, but it also contains the potential to undermine both of those things. When minority rights are up for vote, that seems like a disrespect to the person rather than an instantiation of respect for the person. And so I'm just wondering, what do you think is the relationship between democracy, voting, and equality when the very thing that protects equality in so many successful cases can also undermine it in other cases? I think that's a really crucial question. It's one of the things that I uh, am researching right now. So the notion of political equality can be understood in lots of different ways. Democracy tends to attach to um, a means of realizing equality in terms of political participation. So we as citizens have rights to participate in the decision making that is going to affect all of us on terms that are extended to all and extended to all on equal terms. This is why we have the idea of universal suffrage. This is why we have the idea of equal voting that is one person, one vote. And so I think this notion that we each have a standing or we each have a share in the right to govern is 
at the very heart of what democracy is. Now, it doesn't necessarily have to take the form of voting. In an older version of democracy from ancient Athens, democracy took the form of governing by lottery. So the people who were going to make decisions and the people who made the policies were selected by lot. And that was considered just as much rule by the people as elections. Now, today we have a system where the democracy is fairly representative. So we elect representatives and those representatives vote and they um, create laws and create policies. And they also appoint various officials who make decisions. And you might argue that where the decisions actually get made is very far away from the point at which everyone has equal has an equal opportunity to participate. And so I think this is one of the tensions in contemporary democratic theory, which is that the kernel of the attractive ideal of democracy, which is participation on equal terms, is actually stretched quite thin in the way we see democracies organized today, especially in large scale contemporary societies. And there are lots of reasons for that, partly just the nature of administration in a large state means that not every decision can be made by referendum. But there are other factors that play into this which have to do with uh, the role of education and the role of socioeconomic inequalities, which mean that power is distributed very unequally in democracies, even though it has a formal structure of political equality. So you're right to say that the very thing which is the most attractive about democracy might also be the biggest threat to attaining the goals that we associate with democracy. Uh, And that's part of what my research is about right now. So let me just add one thing to that. When you were talking about democracy reflecting this ideal of political equality, but also possibly threatening the rights of the minority or even rights of individuals against state interference, theorists of democracy have agreed with you that the thing that's most attractive about democracy is also a possible problem or a possible threat. And the two things that they worry about can briefly be identified as minority rights and individual liberties. And so a lot of democratic theorizing has gone into trying to explain how those two things, individual liberties and minority rights, can be safe in a democracy how democracies can be organized so that those things are protected. So you get people using terms like liberal democracy or constitutional democracy, democratic constitutionalism. These are ways of understanding democracy such that the things that democracy threatens are still protected and are still safe. There's a contemporary uh, strand of democratic theory called deliberative democracy, which seeks to protect an ideal of inclusion, an ideal of participation on the part of each individual by defining democracy in terms of each person sharing in the kinds of reasoning that goes on when we make collective decisions. And so those people, uh, those theorists, want to argue that it's part of the idea of democracy that individual liberties are protected and that minority rights are protected because those are the things that enable people to participate on equal terms. And since that is the kernel of the idea of democracy, they argue that those things are protected in a democracy rather than endangered. Okay, so yeah, there seems to be, at least in certain cases, a potential conflict between the interests of 
traditionally disenfranchised minorities in a society and the majority opinion. So, for example, if I'm a trans woman and I would like to have access to public women's restrooms, maybe there isn't enough of a critical mass of trans women in the country to vote with me on that. And I'm, you might think I'm just never going to get that right because there just aren't enough people who are going to vote that way. And so there's this worry that policies which serve the interest of disenfranchised minorities might be forever like stalled or never be able to get off the ground because, you know, the numbers just aren't there. What you just suggested was that a number of democratic theorists have a way to kind of make this all work out, a shape that democracy can take such that the interests of minorities are protected. So how would that work, uh, let's say, in the transgender case, for example? So you're absolutely right to point out that you can easily come up with examples where the preferences of the majority or the will of the majority come into conflict with pretty basic individual fundamental interests. And the theorists of democracy that I was just uh, describing do want to kind of square the circle in a way and include these values in the values of democracy. So they want to say, they want to characterize democracy as that system where each person is able to participate in political decision-making on equal terms with everyone else. And part of what it means to ensure space for people to participate on equal terms is to make sure that their liberties are protected and to also look out for minority interests. Now, you mentioned minorities who are consistently outvoted. This is called, in, in democratic theory, the problem of persistent minorities. So it seems to be very common in a lot of democratic societies that there are minority groups who may or may not be visibly defined. Sometimes they're racial, sometimes they're religious, sometimes they're linguistic. But the problem is that they are a significant minority. And if the policies are reflecting the preferences of the majority or quote unquote will of the majority, then it seems like these citizens are never going to get their way. Just over and over and over again, they're going to get outvoted. Uh, this is also referred to as the tyranny of the majority, and it was a problem that was identified, well, it was discussed a lot in the 18th century, and it's always been a problem in American political theory. How to prevent the majority from um, overruling the minority all the time. So I agree with you that it's very easy to see cases in which minority interests or individual interests can come into conflict with the majority getting their way. And in fact, this is why I think it's actually not a good strategy to try and embed these other values inside the values of democracy. So it seems to me like if you take the word democracy, it literally means rule by the people by the demos, by the whole people, the whole community, exercising power and exercising rule. And that has kind of a negative side, meaning that they're not ruled over by a foreign power or by a tyrant or by a monarch, but it also has a positive side, which means that the people have the power to do things. So a democracy has to be set up so that it can engage in government. It has to be set up so that decisions are made, resources are put to use, things are organized and arranged in a way that the society is actually functioning. So that seems to imply that you have some form of majoritarianism. And so if majoritarianism has to be part of democracy, there are just always going to be cases where people's individual interests and minority interests are threatened. And I think it's 
better as a matter of theory to keep that distinct, to keep that problem in view, rather than to solve the problem by, through the way that we define democracy. The reason why I want to do that is that I think we can articulate valuable things about democracy without having to show that it entails all of these other things that we care about, like individual liberties and protecting interests of minorities. I think there are things we can say about democracy and why it's good, and particularly why majoritarianism is good, that doesn't force us to then say that it conceptually includes these other things that we care about, like individual liberties. Okay, let's move then towards democracy and ask the question, what would it mean for a particular form of governance to be legitimate? And then also, what would it mean for democracy to be legitimate? How do we show that? What does it mean for the people whom it governs? So the question of what makes a particular form of government legitimate or a particular actual government legitimate is notoriously difficult. And democratic theorists have often answered the question by starting with the idea of democracy and saying, well, democracy is a way of achieving political equality, it's a way of achieving self-rule, therefore, when a government achieves self-rule or achieves political equality, it's legitimate. I resist this kind of answer because even though it's invoking morally attractive ideals like self-rule and political equality, it seems to me to be assuming that democracy is the most legitimate form of government but at the outset. And that's actually the question that I want to examine. So what I need to do then is have a definition of democracy or an idea of what democracy is that doesn't automatically assume that it's a legitimate form of government or that it's the most legitimate form of government. Then you raise the question is, well, what would it take to show that democracy is legitimate? And that's a, a specific version of the general question of what would it take to show that any government is legitimate? And that's a very old question in political philosophy. And it rests on further questions about what the purpose of government is, what the risks of political power are, what it would mean for people to live together in a way that is acceptable, how we can protect individuals from the threats posed by other individuals, how we can establish justice in a way that people are treated fairly even if they don't get what they want all of the time. How can we protect people from criminals? How can we protect our borders? These are all questions that have to do with what the purpose of government is. And they all come up when people are discussing whether government is legitimate. So when people criticize governments for being illegitimate, lots of things are invoked. So they're failing to adequately protect their citizens from domination by other citizens, or they are failing to provide the basic socioeconomic goods that would enable people to develop, or they are failing to respect people's rights, or they are failing to bring about a fair system of distribution of resources, or they're failing to look out for the next generation. I mean, there's lots of things people invoke when they're making claims of illegitimacy. You hear those claims made in the international arena, so we say country X is not legitimate. But you also hear them in the domestic arena. You hear them with respect to policies, like such and such healthcare policy is not legitimate, or such and such criminal justice policy is not legitimate. You hear it made with respect to political processes. So we say our system of 
setting up the Senate such that every state has two senators is not legitimate because it doesn't do X, Y, Z. Or you hear people say that gerrymandering, the kind of manipulation of district lines so that electoral results are changed is not legitimate. So you hear claims of illegitimacy in lots of contexts, and you might think that it's just entirely context dependent, but I actually think that in the political case, when we ask about political legitimacy, there's something that ties them together. And my proposal is that this something has to do with whether the way power is being exercised is recognized as valid and appropriate by the people it's being exercised over. And when we see clear examples of illegitimacy in the international arena, like one country takes over another country, we call that something like involuntary rule, or those people are being involuntarily subjected. And I think it's really easy to see there, especially if they rebel and revolt, that they're rejecting the political authority that's being asserted over them. They're rejecting the coercive force that they're being subjected to. And I think this is a unifying idea when we talk about legitimacy. Now, what would it mean to show that democracy is legitimate on that kind of understanding of legitimacy? Well, I think you would actually need to tell a much more complicated and longer story than democratic theorists are currently telling. So it might be that democracy is one way and maybe uh, on the whole successful way of bringing about political rule that people accept the kind of regime or the kind of organization of political power that people aren't rebelling against or starting a revolution in order to overthrow. However, I don't think that it's the only way to achieve that kind of situation, that is to achieve a kind of voluntary rule. Democracy might not be the best way to achieve it in certain circumstances, depending on political factors about the population and the kind of circumstances they face. So what I want to say to the question of why democracy is legitimate is that it's going to have to do two things. That answer is going to have to do two things. One, it's going to have to refer to kind of what are taken as essential features of democracy. And that is what I've been talking about, the kernel of the idea, which is equal participation and equal standing to share and rule. But it's also going to have to make some reference to successful political rule, where successful means recognized as valid and recognized as authoritative by the population that the political rule is ruling over. And so I think democracy has some chance of doing that pretty well, but I think it's very contingent and it depends on a lot of different circumstances. Haven't there been some examples of dictatorial regimes which outsiders would recognize as bad, but for which if you, you know, went around and interviewed the people living in the country, they've to a large extent internalized the ideology of the regime and would generally, you know, have a thumbs up attitude towards it. But then wouldn't a country that was in that situation by the criterion that you just mentioned be legitimate? Yeah, great question. So when we think about the kind of external criticism that you're talking about, we could mean a number of things. We could mean that the regime is not legitimate because it's just doing a really bad job. Like the economy is tanking, there's civil unrest and civil conflict and violence is not kept under control. We also might think that it's not legitimate because 
it's manipulating the people to get them to accept its right to rule. And of course, both of those could be true. <laughs> so it's hard to know what we mean when we're criticizing from the outside a country like that. Now, from the inside, it seems like my account of what counts as legitimacy implies that whenever people accept or affirm the power they're subjected to, then it is legitimate. That's actually not my view. My view is more complex than that. I argue that a regime's legitimacy does depend on a kind of public recognition and a kind of public acceptance, but that acceptance and recognition has to be on the basis of judgments of governance success. And what does not count as governance success is failing to protect citizens and failing to achieve the fundamental governmental competencies, which is to provide for the basic security of everyone. So there are going to be cases where a regime manipulates people into accepting its power in, while at the same time failing to provide for the basic security of all of the subjects. And in that case, I would not say that it's legitimate. But there are also going to be cases where it provides for the basic security of subjects and it wins some degree of acceptance and outsiders don't like it for some reason. Like we think they don't adequately respect the rights we think are important. My view is somewhat against the grain going to argue that it is nevertheless legitimate as long as it's protecting the basic security of subjects. Now, here's another case that I think my view goes against the grain about, which has to do with Say the government is achieving the minimal, its minimal claim, which is to provide for the basic security of subjects, but it's not accepted by the people on whatever grounds. Say the people think that the rulers are of the wrong religion, or the people think the rulers are an established elite and they want to overthrow an aristocracy. My view says that when there's that level of popular rejection or popular refusal to recognize the regime, then it is not legitimate. So I think that case actually shows you why a democracy might be a good way of attaining this kind of public acceptance, this kind of broad popular recognition of the right to rule. And that's because when you have democracies, you have a system of making decisions and a system of investing people with power that is reflecting people's judgments about what government should be doing. Now, it does that very imperfectly but it has a claim to do that better than non-democratic ways of organizing power. So in a way, if this country that we're looking at from the outside isn't democratic, and if it doesn't have popular acceptance, then I think we can criticize it for being illegitimate, but not directly because it's not democratic. We can criticize it because people are not accepting the power that they're subject to, and that's a bad thing, and that's a kind of source of illegitimacy. And we might then suggest that they become democratic or that they become more democratic, but that would be a means to attaining legitimacy and it would be contingent on various historical circumstances. It wouldn't be a logical argument that if they wanna be legitimate, they have to be democratic. So what happens to legitimacy if people in the same political community disagree on the role of democracy. One example, I'm sure you can come up with more, is let's say a majority of the community thinks that democracy involves each individual person voting in their own self-interest, but that a minority thinks the role of voting is to express 
views on the public good, for example. So, I mean, you can see already the conflict there, but what can you say about legitimacy when the divergence goes all the way down to the role of the form of government which you're trying to show was legitimate in the first place? This is a kind of self-referential problem about legitimacy, um, which I find very interesting but also very difficult. One way of approaching this question, which you see reflected in some parts of Aristotle, is that you actually can't even talk about legitimacy until you are already within a constitutional structure. So once you have a constitutional structure and you've decided where the supreme power lies, then you can say whether it's legitimate by asking whether it's operating according to its organizing principles. So it's kind of like, a per, is it performing according to how it was designed to perform? So that's one way of thinking about legitimacy. It's a question that doesn't even get off the ground until you've already got an organizing principle for your constitutional order. I'm more inclined to another approach, which says you can ask about legitimacy before you've defined what the constitutional order is. However, that means there's a limit to what you can say about when something counts as legitimate. So on my view, I've limited myself to uh, the attitudes of those subject to power, and I've tried not to say anything about how things should be organized so that we can make assessments of legitimacy across different types of constitutional orders. Now, you asked about a case of a society where the people in general are supportive of democracy, but they support it or they agree with it as the organizing principle of their political system for very different reasons. So for some, they think democracy is about aiming at the common good, and for others, they think democracy is a kind of aggregation of preferences. This is a, a quite an old problem in democratic theory, which is to say, given that democracy is kind of a process, we don't yet know what the purpose of it is necessarily, and it might be that we would evaluate it differently according to what we think the purpose of the process is. So there's an old adage that says there's no democracy without debate about democracy. And I think that's a very insightful observation because democracy is ultimately a process. It's ultimately a mode of decision making. And sure, we can argue that it serves different purposes, like it may serve the purpose of advancing majority preferences more or less well. But we can't say it's failing as a democracy only in terms of its results, because democracy is about a way of making decisions. So in order to say that it's failing as a democracy, we need to be able to say it's somehow defective at the level of procedure, at the level of decision making. And so these two camps that you're talking about are not going to be able to, neither is going to be able to convince the other side that they are not real Democrats <laughs> in some sense. And so then you're just going to have this ongoing debate about what counts as being democratic. And you might worry that that leads to instability because the political order, the, the way the political order is supposed to work is a little bit up for grabs. But you also might argue that it's the kind of flexibility that leads to stability because there's an ongoing debate among the population about the way political power is functioning in order to bring about the goods that government is supposed to bring about. So I think a commitment to democracy involves a kind of commitment to a process, but it's at a level so vague that it's hard to convince 
everyone that something is not democratic when people see democracy serving such a variety of different purposes. Let me add one more thing about the way we might argue for why a democracy is legitimate. So based on what I've said about how I think legitimacy works, which is that it has to do with a broad popular acceptance or recognition of a system of political authority, you're going to have, you're going to confront cases where there is just deep and intractable disagreement in the population about what valid political authority is. So you have one segment of the population that might want to establish a religiously oriented form of governance. You might have another segment of the population that is completely opposed to that and will only support secular forms of governance. I think one way in which my approach to explaining why democracy matters for legitimacy is that it can give you a way of dealing with this kind of intractable problem about deep disagreement about the nature of political authority. Because it doesn't require full consensus on the purpose of government. It just requires that people be willing to go along with the exercise of power as long as they judge that it's at least minimally successful. And so you might, in these cases, have a democratic system of government set up such that people feel like they can participate in the democracy without committing themselves to a single source of authority or a single source of legitimation. So democracy can be understood as kind of this tool for decision making in circumstances of disagreement that doesn't require that we come to a consensus. But it also respects that there are different segments of society whose acceptance is going to be reduced or maybe even go away completely if those segments aren't taken seriously by the rest of the community. So because democracy is a process that is open to all and everyone gets to participate, it's a way of organizing political power that respects deep and unsolvable disagreements and takes them seriously, but doesn't try to solve them by achieving consensus or achieving some sort of agreement on what the purpose of government is and what the basis of political authority is. So you've argued that an important part of what it is for a government to be legitimate is for the people being governed to recognize the authority of the government and that one of the great things about democracy is that it sort of builds that in. Is democracy the only form of government that has that feature or are there alternatives that also have it? And in addition, like maybe some of these alternatives are preferable to democracy is, you know, maybe we can do better. Yeah, I think that's a great question and one that philosophers haven't said enough about yet. So. I do think that democracy is a strong candidate for bringing about the kind of political legitimacy that I've been talking about, which is that there be government, that there be political power exercised in a way that people recognize as valid and authoritative. I definitely don't think it's the only way to go about doing it. I think it's instructive to look at contemporary China because um, you might argue that that is a less democratic form of government than what we have in the United States. But you can also argue that it governs in ways that deliver public goods and that it also leads to a fair amount of um, development within the society and that it wins a fair amount of popular acceptance. I know some of those things are disputed, but let's just say hypothetically that that's the case. It seems like you can imagine cases where government, where a regime or a political order governs in a way 
that is not democratic in the way we would say, meaning they don't have elections, they don't have referenda, they don't have strict majoritarianism, but they still attain a wide degree of popular support and they're still recognized as valid and they deliver on the basic public goods. Now, we've been talking about democracy and non-democracy. I think it's useful also to think about degrees of democracy. There's a, a strand of theorizing about political authority called republicanism, which basically says that um, electoral politics can do some good, but that good is chiefly keeping the government from dominating the citizens and keeping citizens from dominating each other. But in that case, elections and democracy are kind of one contingent way of bringing that about. You might think there are other ways of bringing that about. Perhaps having strong intermediate organizations or strong judiciary might be other ways of keeping the government from misbehaving without relying on democratic procedures as the main way of doing that. I actually think there are some significant downsides of democracy and there's uh, people increasingly researching democratic anxieties, what they call anxieties of democracy. And these have to do with the way that institutionalizing political equality through elections actually has some serious perverse effects. So for one thing, it means that some people have a lot more power than others. Wealthy people have more power. The media has more power. Religious groups or other um, interest groups have a lot of power. And also it is a very crude way of finding out what people want their government to do. And because it's crude, it can be manipulated by those in power themselves. So congressional representatives or executive representatives can manipulate the political process to stay in power because of the sheer size of democratic elections and the fact that people are not nearly as informed as they should be. So I think that there's a lot of perversities that can come out of democracy. And you might think that dialing down the amount of democracy, maybe dialing up other political features like uh, protections for rights or intermediate organizations might counteract some of those anxieties and pathologies of democracy. There's a sense in which Economically, and also with respect to our kind of global financial institutions, democracies are not able to protect their citizens from devastation through economic factors. Democracies are quite liable to uh, lead to a lot of socioeconomic inequality, which we have research showing is actually bad for overall well-being um, inequality in society. So. I think those kinds of facts and, and kind of pressure from the economic side has prompted people to look again at democracy. Do you think that given the threat that global corporations and global inequality poses even to national interests, there's any reason to expand democracy to the global case or is there good reason to keep it confined to the national? Great question. I feel the pull of both sides. So, uh, I think the economy of power at the international level is in a state of real flux right now. It used to be that states wielded almost all the power, especially military alliances between states. Now, as you say, increasingly multinational corporations wield a lot of power. Financial institutions wield a lot of power. Uh, the global wealthy elite wield a lot of power. And as the distribution of power shifts in the international arena, there's pressure to try and democratize the way power is exercised in the international arena. So there's pressure to make the UN more democratic with respect to how um, 
populations are represented in the Security Council level, etc. There's pressure also on international institutions to be more democratic in their operations, so to be more consultative and more inclusive in the perspectives that they include. It's very hard to see how you would institutionalize global democracy. It's been very difficult to see how the European Union was going to institutionalize democracy and how democratic representation at the EU level was going to interact with democratic representation at the state level, at the national level. I think there is going to be a tension between democratic rule at the state level and democratic rule at the international level. Uh, I think the pressure right now is on the state side. I think that barring some major global crisis, it's going to be very hard to put into place institutions that would be democratic in the international arena. Now, if we were to engage in a thought experiment, which philosophers love to engage in, and we were to try to imagine sort of a global parliament or a global democratic decision-making body, that immediately raises this question of how do we find out what the popular will is? What would it mean to say that the people rule around the globe? Like, how do we figure out what the popular will is if we want to describe what's going on as self-rule or rule by the people? And I think this is not an accident and I think it should make us look more closely at democracy in the national arena because it's also extremely difficult to imagine popular will formation in the, in the national arena. And this has been one of the criticisms of democracy is that there is no way to form popular will. There is no means of, by which to establish what the people want, what the people will, so if you're going to imagine democracy as popular self-rule or popular sovereignty, you have to posit a populace that has a will. And as hard as it is to imagine that in the global arena, I think it's also really difficult to imagine it in the national arena too. And I think that should prompt us to go back and ask, what is it that is the attractive ideal we think democracy embodies, especially if we're now skeptical that you can imagine popular will as this kind of thing that can be established and then enacted. Amanda Green, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. If you have any questions about today's episode, give us a holler on Twitter at, at @elucidationspod. And as always, you can post a comment to our blog at Lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, lucian.uchicago.edu, slash blogs, slash elucidations. On the blog, you can also explore our full back catalog of previous episodes. Thanks again for listening. Mm-hmm.